If Reality Check Radio enriches your day and life, support us to keep bringing you the content, voices, perspectives, and dose of reality you won't get anywhere else. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate. Well, it gives me great pleasure to welcome Linda Wharton into the psychotherapist chair on this edition of Real People. Linda, welcome to this crazy little program. <laughs> Thank you, Jerry. Delightful to be here. The chair feels very comfortable so far. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Listen, I think many of our listeners will already know who you are. You're a well-experienced naturopath and acupuncturist. You've been a health researcher. You are the recipient of the 2008 New Zealand Health Industry Distinguished Service Award. Wow. In recognition of your outstanding contribution to natural health as an author, journalist, and public speaker. And I think your latest book is called Wellbeing. Is that correct? Well, yes, latest, but it was quite a few years ago and it's out of print. It was many years ago. So I do have uh, three women's health books, but unfortunately all out of print now. I've been around a while, Jerry. <laughs> well, and, you know, as many people will know you as the person that set up and leads the Health Forum New Zealand and that has been doing stunning work in um, telling the truth about what is really happening to Kiwis and their health. Is there anything you want to add to that introduction, Linda? Oh, that's quite an intro, isn't it? Um, maybe that I am the mother of two beautiful daughters, the stepmother of four more daughters, a wife and grandmother to seven children, grandchildren. Wow. Seven grandchildren. What what a wonderful, what a wonderful, yeah, wonderful every thing. Every one of them a blessing. I love being a grandma. Yes, I was uh I've I've got one grandson, and when he turned up, I was absolutely knocked flat on my back. I had no idea becoming a grandparent would change me as much as it did. It's actually really profound, isn't it? Because what I didn't anticipate and understand was that when I held you know, each of my grandchildren for the first time, the love rush you get is the same as when you hold your own child. It's an immediate, well, it was for me anyway, immediate bonding and feeling of protectiveness and huge love. I didn't I didn't anticipate that as a grandparent. I thought it would be different. Well, I was in the UK still when my grandson was born and I didn't see him for a year after he was born. And, and I remember holding him for the first time at Manchester Airport of all places oh. and and in the you know in the parking lot of Manchester Airport oh. uh, I, you know the most romantic spot and you know spiritually you know magnificent place to be and in this dreary sort of environment i i was just i was in heaven for a moment this beautiful mm. i was a blubbering wreck you know i was just sobbing Oh, that's it so was... beautiful. It It is a very profound experience, isn't it? When you're, I guess, you know, we're genetically programmed to have that feeling of an incredible protectiveness towards our bloodline. It's amazing. It's just amazing. Yeah. So, Linda, you are here to sit in the psychotherapist chair. And this program is really all about how we understand what makes us tick, what gets us out of bed in the morning, how do we manage and deal with the traumas that life come across. And I suspect in your world, 
you have had to face extraordinary traumas. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do in your day and what you come across and just a little bit really about your life at the moment? Sure. Okay, Jerry. thank you. I guess my life in a way, in terms of my work, has been a life of two chapters. One was 35-odd years in my clinical practice as an acupuncturist and naturopath, um, and I have now closed my clinic um, and retired from that because my full-time job two and a half years, nearly three years ago, became the work I'm doing now, which is the Health Forum NZ. And that came about really because of that background I have as a health researcher and a writer, as well as a clinician. And so I watched the unprecedented unfolding of the development of the COVID injections um, and the use of the mRNA platform. Um, I watched it with kind of mixed feelings, like intrigue, because this was, you know, life-altering science in the making, but also great reticence and a sense of trepidation because of what I knew about the technology, you know, from times past. Um, so I started a little Facebook group uh, when the rollout started here in New Zealand because I thought that somebody would also have feelings of um alarm about what we were seeing with the rollout. I had watched the adverse event databases, um, especially in UK and America for the few months that they were ahead of us. Uh, and I saw some things that seemed unprecedented compared to traditional childhood vaccines that I'd watched before. Um, so I waited for somebody to speak up. Nobody did. So I started this little Facebook group and I had no idea what I was doing that day. It was literally a platform just to put voices uh, from around the world that were starting to express concern. You know, scientists and epidemiologists and immunologists, some brave early people that were concerned about what was happening. Um, and this preceded the development of NZDSOS, the New Zealand Doctors Speaking Out with Science. So at the time, I was seemingly the only person sticking my head above the parapet in New Zealand and because of that, once the rollout started here and we started to, you know, accrue the same huge numbers of people with vaccine injury, injection injury, because it's not really a vaccine, but gene therapy injury, um, they had nowhere to go. And so word quickly spread about this little tiny corner of the internet on Facebook of all places. Um, we lasted nine months before... We were censored out of existence, and during that time, we grew from one member to nearly 60,000 members, uh, and I did the data analytics. Predominantly, they were Kiwis. There were about 5,000 members from offshore, um, and the rest were New Zealanders, and they were people who shared my concerns. They were people that came to the health forum to uh, to get access to the kind of information that simply was taboo in New Zealand um, and I'm not talking about as Sean Plunkett would say cooker stuff I'm talking about you know genuine like uh, peer-reviewed or um, preprint science and then of course we became a safe compassionate caring community for the actual vaccine injured and then we had thousands and thousands of Kiwis who were mandated out of their work because they said no to the injections. So they joined us as well. And that's the early days of the Health Forum. 
um, the Facebook group, we were taken down. We kind of fled to free speech platforms like MeWe and Telegram. And now for the last eight months or so, I've been devoting a lot of time to building um, a big following on Twitter, now called X, because uh, it is very much a global platform. Um, and I, I love it. I'm really enjoying my time over there. Wow. That's a pretty breathtaking story, Linda. And I think that you are, you must have come into contact with very large amounts of trauma. Would that be an accurate assessment? Oh, uh, un unimaginable amounts of trauma, Jerry. I mean, the ordinary people that aren't sort of living in, you know, this little world that you and I are aware of, they've just got no idea of the immense degree of suffering, the severity and the number of New Zealanders who are affected, their health has been affected. So, yeah, huge amounts of trauma. And in the last week or so, I think this is the elephant in the room we probably ought to be talking about, at least give a mention to, is the whistleblower Barry Young and what he has yeah. what he has shared. I wonder, you know, whether what he is sharing fits in with what you've been seeing over the last few years. Well, it's interesting. I I actually have great admiration for Barry. Uh, you know, I mean, he's an unusual whistleblower in that he he set himself up potentially for prison and declared his tri true identity at the same time, which a lot of whistleblowers don't do. You know, they, they divulge the information but not their identity. So I have a lot of admiration for what he's done. He hasn't transgressed people's medical privacy with what he's done. Um, not in terms of the public release of the data anyway. And, you know, what I decided right from the beginning, I don't have the data. I haven't downloaded it myself. There's probably not much point in me having the data because I'm not a statistician. I don't have the, you know, the, the knowledge and the experience to actually analyse that data. But my understanding, certainly of what Steve Kirsch is saying and his team has analysed the data um, it, you know, basically he's saying that there is an unprecedented excess mortality and that we have to seriously look at COVID injections as, you know, as being a cause of that. And it's absolutely what I've been witnessing in New Zealand for the last three years. Um, many of the people that contact the Health Forum are people with stories of loved ones who have died um, unexpectedly, you know, a short period or maybe even a longer period, you know, maybe they've, uh, they were healthy, they took dose one or dose two, they developed very quickly, you know, chronic disease that they'd never experienced. And then within a couple of months, they, they died. So there's, there's a, a longer progression to some of the deaths, but they've got an unusual nature. And then others are very, very fast. You know, we've got, had reports of death on the same day, um, the same weekend, within a week. Um, so, yeah, that whistleblower data very much backs up what our empirical experience has been with reports from the public. This isn't really um, what we're focusing on today, but I think it would be um, remiss not to at least, you know, shout out to anyone else who is uh, willing to speak out the truth in still working within the health uh, organisations here in New Zealand. 
But I think is every possibility that Barry may have opened the floodgates and that we may see some kind of a turning point in truth. At least that's what we're hoping for. But I, I think you, your work, and certainly in your close collaboration with New Zealand doctors speaking out with science, I would have thought that aside from official statistics, you are the person who holds more information and has experienced more information and has probably accessed more information on a anecdotal, personal, individual level than probably anyone else in New Zealand. Would that be a fair accusation to make? I I, I think I agree with you, Jerry. Um, you know, I'm not a doctor. Um, I'm not an immunologist, a cardiologist. Obviously, all of those people are seeing vaccine-injured people, whether they recognise it or not. But what I am that fits your description is the person in New Zealand with the greatest grassroots, you know, right down at, at, at the personal level, the greatest grassroots contact with vaccine-injured people in New Zealand. I mean, look, I can't quite comprehend how you have managed to handle that. And that's why I think it's going to be such an interesting chat we're going to have today, because I think many, many people will be interested in how you handle um, dealing with that much trauma. Look, I was one of possibly the only psychotherapists in the whole of New Zealand offering um, when there was a, a two-week window when people could get exemptions from their mandates. Yes. There was yes. a phony war where for two weeks, qualified health professionals could give exemptions and yeah. my wife and I spent, where well, she spent all, you know, we spent 18 hours a day for about three weeks. She was yeah. uh, dealing with emails and setting up appointments. I was going on to appointments. I was identifying whether people were in mortal fear to the injection. And if they were in mortal fear, I said it would be absolutely unethical to for me to do anything other than issue them with an exemption on the basis of both their mental health and their physical safety. Until we end up in a, a totalitarian state, like in Hitler's time, when Mengele thought it was okay to inject people with things that would kill them, um, I felt that we were not quite at that point, and therefore I, I was literally one of the only psychotherapists. I haven't yet heard of any other psychotherapists. We were inundated, and for just three yeah. weeks, I interviewed something like 150 people, oh, and, and heard their stories. Wow. Um, and once we'd given them the exemption, which was then gaslighted and taken out from them, it was yes. taken away from them, which was a double horror. That was like a double psychological whammy. First, they were had their jobs threatened. Then they were given hope. And then that was smashed. Um, yeah. And what they did, what that did to me is it made me so enraged. I became politically active at that point. At that point, they had the reverse effect to what they were hoping, I think. And then yeah. I was a coordinator down here in Wanaka for the local Voices for Freedom group. And we had a fab group doing great things, still is, and someone else is now coordinating. But for during that period, um, I, I listened to more stories. I was on my knees at the end of each day. Yeah, I was weeping I at, at what was happening. And these are people who were being, uh, there were people who were going to be dispossessed of their houses. There were people who were going to, who's, who were going to be um, kicked out of the country whilst their own children would be able to stay. So families were literally being torn apart. People whose work visas would be removed because they no longer had a work visa or permit. 
and hearing story after story after story and all the time returning back to spending time with them and saying, what have you got? What resources have you got to help you through this time? And you know what? The one resource that returned again and again, and I will keep shouting out for these three ladies until I've got breath, is the fact that there were local groups all around New Zealand, over 100 local groups. And I could say to them, have you thought of joining your local Voices of Freedom? There you will find safety. There you will find other people. There you will be heard. There you will find fellow humans who actually will care. And I believe in that time, mental health in New Zealand should hang its head in shame and it should and it should exonerate and award these three ladies the mental health mm -hmm. award. Whatever mental health award goes in New Zealand, what Voices of Freedom did for literally hundreds of thousands of people was to create a safe space where they could have soothing and reassurance and fellowship. I will never stop singing their praises. And they don't know uh, I'm saying this and they don't pay me I'm, to say it. No, I know, Jerry. I'm t I'm totally with you and the three wonderful ladies and all their teams. I mean, they know how I feel about them. We will never know how many lives they saved because there were so many broken, dispossessed people that would have, you know, some of them would have seen no point or no ability to keep going if it hadn't been for the VFF communities that were there for them. You know, they're heroes. Yes. And they were, you know, on a, on a biblical scale, the people that would not take the vaccination were treated like lepers. Biblical lepers were the lepers in biblical yeah. times weren't allowed into towns. They weren't allowed into play. They had to keep themselves out. They weren't allowed anywhere near the churches. Well, it sounded just like what we were doing today. This was a biblical, biblical moment. And one thing that, you know, whatever a person's faith is, very few people can gainsay the incredible example of Jesus. And he just walked straight in amongst them and he spent his time with them and he healed them. And I feel that's what those three ladies did. They, in biblical proportions, they stepped in to a whole community that had been leperized. I don't even know if there's such a word as leperized. I've just made it up. There is now. There is now. You make sure you send this recording to those three wonderful women so that when they're having hard days, they can listen to Jerry and Linda oh. <laughs> reminding them how incredible they are. Uh, yes. Well, thank you for uh, sharing in that story. And in your case, I've said that, you know, it brought me to my knees, but th that is a tiny, tiny proportion of the amount of um, the amount of stories of trauma, of disillusion, of being disenfranchised, of so much psychological damage. Um, how did you get through that, Linda? How did you do it? Oh, um, I think it's it's multifactorial. Some days I ask myself that. Um, I wasn't on my own, so so I had a team of, and we didn't set out to make it an all woman team, but that's just what happened. I had a team of incredible women, uh, many of them who had been in the vaccine injury space for years. Um, some of them through harm to their own children with childhood vaccination or Gardasil vaccination. So they were they were the very kind of wise warriors that had years under their belt, whereas I was very much a newcomer to this field and I hadn't stepped willingly into it. You know, it wasn't at all what I anticipated, This all of this happening. 
so I had incredible support from my team. I still do have a team. It's a lot smaller now, but um, I've still got a lot of support around me. Um, the support of my family. So my mother, my father's passed away, but my mum uh, is, you know, my my greatest family cheerleader besides my husband. So, uh, you know, mum was very proud of everything I do. And she's actually quite clued up in this whole area as a result of lots of conversations we've had and videos we've watched together um and of course my husband so my husband Craig who uh you know is just a champion for this work um so so those are the sort of like the community around me that have held me up and underpinning that over and above that and underneath that um has very much been an internal and an, a, a sort of a spiritual knowing uh, belief and feeling that I was called to this work that I that my life experience up to now has somehow prepared me and called me to this time for this work um I don't know if that's a deluded thing or you know whether it's real but it's certainly what I feel at a gut level um and as part of that I I don't do this work in my own strength so I feel very connected to to God. Um, I pray. Uh, I, I believe in a divine or supernatural strengthening that has equipped me for the work that I do. Um, and I know it's real because, you know, there have been many days, not so much now, but in that intense year when we had the massive group, there were many days where I'd fallen to bed at night and I just felt completely wrecked, like I didn't know, you know, how I was going to sleep. And I would pray and I'd be asleep just in five minutes. You know, I'd just be like completely unconscious and I'd wake up and it was morning. So it was lifted off me somehow at the end of the day. Yeah, so, so a combination of wonderful human support from loving, caring people and and God wrapping me up and guiding me and keeping me safe. Wow, beautiful. Oh, that's such a lovely description. I had an image there of you just kind of going to sleep and just like the hand of God coming down upon you. What a lovely image. Allowing you to resuscitate, renew, refresh for the next day's work. Beautiful. And I had beautiful things. I had wonderful things happen all the time. Like, you know, I would get people write to me with prayers that they'd written for me. Um, and some of them were very powerful. And, you know, I would I would speak them aloud on my own. Um, and I had many, many Christian people in the health forum who would message me regularly and let me know that they were praying constantly. Their prayer chains, you know, of friends praying. And so there was a lot of prayer power going on. Wonderful. Tell us a little bit about where you come from. How on earth did you or your family end up in New Zealand? Tell us a little bit about the, the backstory of Linda Wharton. Sure. Okay. Well, I come from a, a very small family. Um, I've just got one brother who lives in Malaysia and he is uh, eight years younger than me. And my mum and dad, and my mum and dad both were born and grew up in a little village in Yorkshire called Garforth, 
and they met each other when they were 18. They got married when they were 19. They had me when they were 21. And my dad uh, had spent years at Trinity College, which is a naval college in UK, from I think about the age of 12. He, you know, grew up there training to be a navigator. And unfortunately, he he passed everything and he became a navigator, but his eyesight started to fade within a couple of years. And in those days, you weren't allowed to wear any kind of, you know, optical aids to be a navigator. So he had to leave the, the Merchant Navy, it was, and he joined the army. So my my childhood, right the way until we came through to New Zealand when I was 15, my first 15 years of life were very mobile, living living in various parts of England, um, three years in Hong Kong, four years in Singapore, and then I was nearly 16 when we moved to New Zealand. Um and I had a very, I had a very happy family home. You know, I have, I've, I've got a wonderful mum and dad uh, who were devoted to us two kids, and we were just a normal, you know, normal family basically. Um, and I was very much into horse riding. I had a horse when we lived in England, so I loved horse riding. And when we lived in Singapore, I was really into competitive swimming. So I did that for four years. Um, and, yeah, life was good growing up. Well, I spent 28 years of my life uh, just down the road from Garforth in a tiny little town oh. called Hebden, Hebden Bridge. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Small all, world. All the, all the side to Halifax from Garforth. <laughs> Yeah, you know how to do the speak. <laughs> <laughs> we used to drive through Garforth every week, taking my daughter to play for youth teams at Leeds Football Club. So we used to literally drive wow. drive past that area every week. Uh, so that's a part of the world that I left to come here, actually. So I think I waited until you had left the area before I moved up there. But uh, yeah, it was, <laughs> it's, uh, oh, it's an amazing place. It's a small world. It is. It yeah, is. I haven't been back to England. I'm 62 now. I have not been back to England since I was 21. I don't know how that happened. Just lots of life got in the way. Um, lots of life. And now I'm longing to go back. I feel, you know, like a real urge to go back to the home of my ancestors and revisit the places of my childhood. So I'm sure I'll make that happen in the next year or two. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. So, Linda, it sounds like, you know, a very stable, it, there was a lot of movement, you were travelling around, and would it be fair to say that you're doing a fair bit of travelling these days? I am now. I Yes, uh, Craig and I decided six months ago that we were going to actualise a dream that we've had for a long time, and we were going to move into a caravan, we put tenants into our home, and we didn't have, you know, a great structured plan, we just wanted to go where we were led, just sort of go where the wind blew us, where the opportunity led us and move into community, you know, meeting health forum people. I knew that I wanted to do events and speaking, uh, which I have done in the last six months. Um, we wintered over in the Nelson area and I did five events down there, which I loved. And it's been it's been fabulous. We're both gypsies. Potentially Craig's even more of a gypsy than I am. And we love um, the not knowingness of every day, waking up and just thinking, oh, 
what will happen today? Where will we go today? Who will we who will we meet today? So, and we're very lucky. We're in a comfortable caravan. It it doesn't feel, you know, it doesn't feel like a poor second option. It it feels it feels like a privilege. Wonderful. Well, I do hope the wind will blow you down Wanaka Way, and we can meet in person. <laughs> For sure, Jerry. We're coming back to the South Island. Uh, we'll be down there again by the end of January, and then kicking off actually touring around. So I'll make sure I come to Wanaka. So, look, your early life was travelling up until a certain age, up until about how old were you when you got to New Zealand? Well, I turned 16 a couple of months after we got here. We did do a bit more travelling. We had a couple more postings in New Zealand before we finally landed in Auckland, mm. uh, you know, for all these decades since then. Um, so, my, I mean, my growing up was interesting because it, while I had the strong sense of stability within my family with a devoted mum and dad, there was nothing in, else in my life that was stable. It was when I think about my childhood, it was all about endings and new beginnings because the the nature of being a military child, most military children are sent to boarding school because of that nature of life. Mum and dad wanted to keep me with them, and I'm really grateful for that. But it um, it was challenging when you're a child saying goodbye to all of your, your best friends that you love and your school that you love and traveling off to some place on the other side of the world and trying to fit in to a community that's already formulated, you know, dropping into a school, not at the start of a term, but midterm, when all the friendship groups were formed. And so it taught me some skills. It taught me a lot of resiliency, which I didn't realize at the time, but now as an adult looking back, I think that that life I had, I think it probably equipped me in some ways for what I'm doing now. You know, it made me um, sure of myself and able to converse with people that I don't know. Yes, you would have had to break into existing friendship groups. You would have been like the spare penny. You would have been the outsider. And they do say that a lot of people who have stepped up or move into healing work or therapy are often outsiders for a variety of reasons that there are reasons why people that like that pay attention that like to observe people's behavior to become you know fairly analytical of what groups of what I can just imagine you as a as a teenager for example trying to you know I mean teenage years are tough even when you've got you know buddies yeah. you've known for years they but are. coming in coming in as a outsider and having to break in and all the the little groups trying to keep themselves together the little cliques you know I actually think that our move from England we were living in Salisbury beautiful Salisbury Salisbury Cathedral beautiful and I was going to a girls grammar school it was all very lovely and British and dad left the UK army, joined the New Zealand army, because at the time, this was, when was this, mid-70s sometime, 76, 77, the only people that were being allowed into New Zealand were army, uh, to join the army, or colour television technici- technicians. So we got in through the army door. Um but it was the most massive culture shock because we went from a beautiful home in Salisbury and I used to go to this big, massive Victorian girls' grammar school in a big red brick 
you know, sprawling Victorian building. And we were posted to Linton Army Camp in Palmerston North. Uh, talk about culture shock. My mum and I cried every day for a year. It was just the most massive shock. And I was sent to Palmerston North Girls High School. So from a very proper British girls' grammar school with a massive, like, I don't know how many hundred years of tradition, to Palmerston North Girls Grammar School, where um, I've got to say I just did not fit in. Um, this was nearly 50 years ago, right? So the girls were pretty scary. They were not like any girls I knew back home in England. They were pretty, you know, they were pretty strong, staunch, pioneer, tough girls, and I just didn't fit in. Um, and I didn't make any close friends. I just kind of survived my time at, at that school and hated it. So you painted yourself as this fading, pommy kind of <laughs> lily, wilting in the New Zealand sun. Oh, oh, no, I'm sure I had strength in me, but I was a young girl. I was, you know, like you said, teenage years, they're challenging. And, and it was just a huge culture shock. And I can remember... Um, I think we I think we moved there in the winter. It was freezing cold, and I can remember going to Palmerston North with my mum and dad the first for the first time in the winter, and we saw people walking with no shoes on and bare feet, and we'd never seen that before, especially in the winter. And that was the start of initiation into hemiculture. I'm fully initiated now after forty eight odd years. <laughs> Well, and there was I doing the reverse probably a few yeah. years earlier than that because I I arrived in the UK, you know, refusing to wear even sandals, you know, and at the age of five walking to school and my mother saying, no, you've got to put on these sandals. And in my kind of, at then I would have had a broad Kiwi accent. Um, I, I refused. And then she eventually made me and I had to, I had to put these shoes on and then we'd wave, she'd wave me goodbye. And it was in the days when children were safe enough to walk to school, you know, and um, we get to the top of the road, turn the corner and stop. And me and my other two brothers who also very Kiwi-fied. <laughs> Shoes off, Shoes into, off. The, into the satchel, walked, walked uh, to school bare feet, you know, and then and then get into the classroom and the teacher going, Jerry, you where's your sandals? And I go, ah, oh, sorry, miss, must have left them at home, miss. And she said, shall we just look in your satchel in a very patient, kind way? Yeah. And she said, oh, look, there they are. Let's put them on, shall we? And this went on, oh, apparently, gosh. for... This went on for like a year. I, I refused to buckle under for a long time. So there's an so early So we had rebellion. sort of mirror, we had mirror experiences, didn't we? We crossed <laughs> continents and countries and had mirror experiences. Yeah, yeah. And when I, you know, in my, my work in the UK, I spent a great deal of time training massage therapists. The, the great delight was that I... We always worked with bare feet to be properly grounded in our body work and our massage. Yeah. So outside my training rooms, we had big hotel rooms. You see like a hundred pairs of shoes outside, <laughs> like some mosque. So you didn't every... know, but you were training for that when you were five. You didn't realize that that was to come. You, you chose exactly. the perfect profession, that you don't need to wear shoes. 
Well, me and the other trainers, we used to take great delight in walking across the car park from the training room, the banquet halls where we were teaching, to the to the restaurants to have something to eat, walking along in our bare feet, and all the English people looking at us in horror, but we just didn't. Once, yeah. once you get out of the habit of shoes, you really don't want to constrict your feet. You know, they're, they're meant yeah. to be in touch. You know, many of my clients, when they arrive to see me, they see me standing on the lawn outside and uh, just grounding myself in bare feet in between my clients. I always give myself a little time for that so that I can, I can be a bit more, you know, grounded in my work. But listen, this is about Jerry Pives again. It's not really meant to be a show about me, Linda. It's meant to be about you. (laughs) (laughs) We're just having a conversation. I'm interested in learning about you. (laughs) Well, I'm enjoying our conversation immensely and learning about your arrival. So if you've just tuned in, you are listening to real people in the psychotherapist chair with me, Jerry Pives, and I am talking to Linda Wharton. It's a great privilege to be talking with Linda about her life, about her background, about what makes her tick, what gets her out of bed in the morning, and how she deals with stress and trauma. Let's move on a bit and talk a little bit, if we might, about what influence you think your childhood has had on you. What have been the gifts from your childhood? I mean, I'm already getting a very strong picture of resilience, of despite all the moving, a stability, but there's a pain and a and a kind of a difficulty and a challenge there as a young girl being moved from place to place um, and, and all of that. And there's a gift of that, which is that you had to find how to communicate and, and that's look at what you do now. You go around, I've been to at least, I think, two, if not three of your talks. You're a very beautiful speaker. You're very genuine. You're very open. You're very natural. It's as if you are just arriving for the first time at a school and letting everyone know who you are. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I love speaking. Yes. I, 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 I'm a communicator. I've always, I've always been a communicator. So even when I was, you know, at college, English was always my strongest subject. I, I always, I used to tell my English teacher always that I wanted to be a journalist and I did want to be a journalist. That was my passion. Um, I didn't get into journalism college when I applied when I was 18. They told me I needed to go away and mature a bit more. Um, And so then I decided to go to university and do a psychology degree because I was also really interested in people and, you know, how their minds and hearts work. Um, And, so I never went back to pursue the journalism in a traditional route, but instead I started my own career, my parallel career as a health researcher, writer, journalist, columnist. So so I became a journalist, but I was lucky that I got to choose what I wrote about. Um, so, yeah, so I love communicating. I've always been a communicator. And in terms of what did my childhood give me, um, it's given me a love of change. So I have an adventurousness in my spirit where I don't, I'm not resistant to new things, to, you know, to trying new things and starting new endeavors and making new friends, moving to new places. So I'm kind of light on my feet and there's a good and a bad to that because, uh, you know, the, the potentially the downside, depending on how you look at it, is that. I am a rolling stone. And so even before we lived in the caravan uh, and even before I met Craig, I continued that 
sort of novelty seeking in my adult life. You know, I'd live in a house for a couple of years and then I'd think, oh, I feel like moving now for no reason, just that I wanted to just pack everything up and move. So it's been a life of a lot of change. And I think because of that grounding as a child and never having a permanence in relationships other than with my parents, when I look over the course of my life, I I don't have a lot of really long-term friendships. I tend to have chapters of friendship in my life. As I've changed, my friends have changed, and I've, I've sort of had seasons. Not that I've fallen out with them, but just that life's kind of moved forward and I've attracted new friendship groups. So I look at people, you know, who have got parties, 50th birthday parties, and they've got school friends, a whole bunch of school friends there, and I sort of feel a bit envious about that. But I've never quite managed to do that. Mm. Yeah. So I'm really fascinated that right from the off, you were interested in psychology. You were interested in understanding how people work. And that then led, I think, to not only your research and your the, the journalism carrying on, but a, a tremendously busy life, I think, as a as a holistic therapist doing acupuncture and naturopathy. How did you fall into that little lot? Right. Well, that's really interesting, actually, that story. Well, I think it's interesting. Um, I was at university doing my psych degree, and in my last year of psychology, I got very sick with like a chronic fatigue type condition with immune dysfunction and chronic fatigue. And I almost chucked it all in because I was so sick, but I didn't. I kept going. And I had a part-time job at work calls in school holidays and on weekends. And one of the women I worked with hadn't seen a doctor for 25 years. She had uh, just seen this old, you know, one of New Zealand's first uh, naturopaths called David Duggan in Auckland. And she said to me, why don't you go see my naturopath for your chronic fatigue? And I didn't even know what a naturopath was, but I duly trotted along. And it changed the course of my life because having only been to doctors and specialists and tried various drugs to no avail, I went to see this naturopath and followed his recommendations and his medicine and very quickly started to turn my health around. So I finished my degree. I decided to do a one-year gap year traveling to UK and Europe. And during that time, I had so many synchronistic events where I'd find myself sitting on a train or in a cafe and I'd start talking to the person next to me and they'd say, oh, I'm an osteopath. And I'd say, what's what's that? Or, you know, I'm an acupuncturist. And I'd say, what's that? So I'd never had any exposure to holistic healing at all. So I travelled for a year and I came back to New Zealand that I absolutely knew that this was this was my life path. I wanted to be a naturopath. I wanted to work with people and empower them using my psychology, but then learning all the new skills to empower them and teach them and lead them onto a you know a healthy lifestyle and and wellness. So I did my uh, naturopathic degree, started practicing, um, had a health problem of my own that I sought help from an acupuncturist, and it was remarkable the results I had and so I thought to myself wow imagine if I combined acupuncture 
with naturopathy and with psychology. So I went back to college. I worked part-time as a naturopath and I did my acupuncture uh, diploma um, for three and a half years. And then I started my own practice and, um, yeah, I had, you know, nearly 35 years in practice, always as a sole practitioner. And I did something very unusual. Nobody was doing it back when I started out, but I niched my practice and I focused almost exclusively on women's health. And so that that's what I became known for, working with women. Um, I did lots of fertility and pregnancy type work, but basically all aspects of women's health, you know, everything hormonal that you can think of that affects a woman. And I loved it. I loved my work. I, I was very busy. I worked full time. I just loved the women that I worked with. Um, I ended up over that period of time caring for lots of families of multi-generational. You know, I'd care for a woman, then she, then I'd help her have the baby, then she'd start bringing the baby, then the baby would grow up and have a child, and sometimes I worked literally across three generations. So it was it was a real gift. It was very special. What a beautiful work. What a beautiful gift to be able to help people and to do it with natural, in natural ways, to be able to help them without having to make um, chemical or pharmaceutical chemical interventions. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. So it seems like meaning for you really became helping others. Yes, and right from a very early stage. Um, How early? Well, when I when I gave up on the journalism thing, I thought, oh, I'm not waiting. I'm not waiting around doing nothing for a few more years while I mature. I'm going to go and do my psychology. And once I started the psychology, I thought, oh, I want to be a psychologist. I loved it. I loved learning how the brain works. I loved it all except the endless hours. It was very behavioral psychology at Auckland Uni. So we had so many labs working with pigeons and rats and skinner boxes, teaching them, you know, if you press this bar 650 times on the 651st time, a piece of wheat will come out, you know, all that operant conditioning stuff. I didn't really enjoy that. Um, so, yeah, right, right from early on, I... Yeah, I just love people and I, I wanted to be a part of people finding wellness and mental health and I guess partly because I'd known what it's like to, in terms of mental health, I'd known what it was like to feel lost and alienated and sad and experiencing grief with all of those changes in childhood. Yeah. Mm. It's always amazed me why psychologists think that to understand humans, you need to study rats. But then I now think that by my, my conclusion to this is that they've studied so many rats that many have become like rats themselves. They've certainly <laughs> ratted, they've certainly ratted out when it comes to the psychological kind of manipulation that's been going on in the last three years. There's quite a few psychologists who are going to have a lot to answer for on the Day of Reckoning, I reckon. Mm. Mm. <laughs> I agree. My... The, the PSYOPs brigades, so a lot of psychologists have been gainfully or ungainfully employed for the last four years working for governments. You've mentioned, we've talked about trauma throughout this programme, and we've got a few more minutes left. I just wondered if we could close really by thinking about 
What would you describe as the most? We, we've talked about your health forum work, and and we we've given that I think a good amount of space. Yeah. But aside from that, Linda, in your personal life, what would you say mm-hmm. was the most challenging, most difficult, most traumatic time for you? You've mentioned some of the traumas in your childhood. I wonder when you give yourself a moment to reflect, what would you say was the most difficult time and what do you think got you through that? Well, I don't even need to reflect. I absolutely know um, the horror years. I know what they were. Um, My youngest daughter started on a path of substance abuse. And so the hardest time of my life was basically trying to save my daughter over a period of a decade. Um, While she was very, very ill with mental health problems and drug addiction, I'm very happy to um, let you know that she's 27 and she's been fully sober now from everything for seven years. Um, And she's got a little boy and she's a wonderful mum and she's got a degree in psychology and she wants to work with um, other young people with addiction problems. So life is a funny way of preparing you for your life path, doesn't it? So those were definitely the hardest years of my life. And um, I've got to say, compared to those years, nothing really comes close because it's a terrifying place to be in as a mother and no doubt as a father as well. When you have a child that could be taken from you at any time, you know, and every day you sort of think, and this went on for 10 years, so it's not like, a child that get, gets a sickness for a few weeks and you think they might die and then they recover and life carries on. This is a chronic, seeping, open kind of a wound. Um, very, very traumatic. And what was part two? How did I survive? How did I cope with that? Um, not in any kind of heroic way. So, so I survived... I clearly survived because here I am on the other side and I'm functioning and I think relatively intact. But I was broken for a long time through those years. Um, I had to do a lot of my own work, which I did through 12-step programs, through um, Al-Anon in particular, which is for families of alcoholics. Um, And I had to work really, really hard because of that unique relationship between a parent and a child you know you're just biologically primed in every way to give up your own life to save your child you know parents jump in front of moving cars and do everything because we wanted to save our children so there's a lot of untangling of that to be able to come to a place of not of your sanity and well-being not being dependent on whether or not your child is sober. Um, So huge amount of learning. And, yeah, and, you know, periodically I would go through phases where I was doing quite well and she was doing quite well and then everything would hit the wall again, Um, you know, and there are multiple suicide attempts and it was just a really, really, really dark time. But, you know, the happy story for anybody listening to all that despair is, if you're going through it and you've got somebody you love with addiction, um, never ever give up hope that it that it can be different. They can change. 
my daughter was so sick I thought she was the one that could never ever turn it around it was so bad um, and she has so there is always hope but they they have to want to do it we can't do it for them we can't make them do it we can't force them to do it uh, that's completely wasted time and effort for everybody they have to want to do it this is in many ways the New Zealand curse, I think. There is a curse of alcoholism and addiction here in New Zealand. Yes, I um agree. it's I think it it my understanding, my own view, if you like, is that it's a consequence of a culture that has had some really tough history, you know, whether you're pioneering and doing the backbreaking work of turning turning the land into farming land, whether it's all the conflicts that have peppered the history of any country, actually, as as different groups have met and collided and tried to work out how to coexist together. When there's been a lot of tough living, and you see, in England, that tough living happened around about the time of the Ang Anglo-Saxons. Yeah. Here in New Zealand, it only happened a couple of generations ago. Yep. So in order to survive those tough times, I think a culture has developed, which which I would call a be strong culture, which is to just get on with it, to stiffen up, to suck it up and to get on. And of course, in that process, much gets, gets suppressed. I'm not talking about you or your daughter, um, but I'm talking about New Zealand as a culture. And I think the curse of addictions um, are the consequence of a tough internal kind of culture that has done extraordinarily well and is a brilliant culture and and i love this culture i speak of this with real love having missed it for 58 years i think i really appreciate it but i i think also what i'm noticing is the difference in a culture that is still fairly fresh and young um and i think that the the result of that has been that instead of dealing with and processing the difficult feelings of trauma and 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 whatever um what's happened is it's built up to so much that addictions become the only escape route that people yeah. find available to them and oh absolutely i i totally agree with all of that because i think about you know new zealand culture and the terrible mental health record we have the suicides the addiction um, and I agree that we're very, very close to our pioneer roots. They're, you know, they're just over our shoulder. And so those kind of genetic traits of, you know, step up a lip and, and you know, strong backbone and not showing or expressing vulnerability, um, not talking about feelings, just kind of swallowing it down and, you know, going to chop the wood or whatever you do. Um, it's very close. It hasn't had generations and hundreds of years to grow into something something else. I'm sure every parent can relate to the horror of what you're describing and going through that, and not just once, not just twice, not just a hundred times, but for ten years, mm. always having that pressure there. And and I think you know being able to find safe spaces to talk about our feelings to recognize that humans are are made of soft tissue you know we're not 
we're not steel and grit, actually. We can't operate like machines and, and be yeah. tough and be, you know, we in the bodywork world, my life started with massage. I used to really hate those massage therapists that said, you know, bring your body for a machine check, check up the machine like you check up your car. And it was I used to want to rip down those little adverts, you know, they just they just made me judder. I think, you know, we are soft tissue. And I my career was in bodywork initially before psychotherapy. But, you know, what I what I realized was that when the tissue got soft, that's when we got well, that we are soft tissue beings and that our strength comes more from the softness and the pliability of something like the willow tree than it does from a rigid tree that, that can't bend in yes. the wind and therefore topples in Snaps. the in the. Mm. Exactly. And and so this idea of sharing our inner journeys is not a sign of weakness. It's what makes us truly strong, in my opinion. I don't know if you have an opinion on that. I I do. I share I share your opinion. Um it makes us strong. It gives us opportunity to inspire and encourage each other. Um we learn from each other when we're vulnerable and we you know, are witness to somebody else's suffering and their journey of strengthening through it. You know, I'm 62, my husband's 67. We talk about aging, we talk about mortality. Um, my husband's mum died last year. And so we cut, you know, we feel the vulnerability of impermanence that we're not here forever. But but we talk about Craig and I talk about the one of the beautiful gifts of aging is that you you've lived through so many life cycles and so many seasons that you are able when the hard things come you're able to to have a genuine awareness that it's not going to be that forever that you know you look back over the course of your six decades and you think of all the other hard times that you thought would never go and that this was your life forever and you realize that you know you've had so many other lives on top of that since then and that is that's a gift of aging because i think that's why so many young people take their lives when things are really hard they haven't they haven't had that lifespan to realize that this is a season it is going to change things will get better um, which is the tragedy, of course, of you know, of people leaving Earth when they're young and not not getting to know that. I'm rambling now. Well, if that's rambling, you know, let's have a lot more of it, Linda, please. <laughs> <laughs> I I want to just give a shout out to all those professionals working with addictions. There's so many dedicated professionals out there. Um, working to help people through this very difficult thing called addiction. Um, And I just wonder why, while we're talking about it, you you mentioned Al-Anon. And I think many people are familiar with AA, and I I absolutely admire and rely on and um, recommend AA as a fantastic way to get through, to identify what is really going on underneath the addiction to really get to the cause of it and to really take charge again. It's just an amazing organization. But many people may not know about Al-Anon. It's the kind of lesser known brother, if you like, of AA. Could you, would you share with the listeners a little bit about what that is? It is. So um, it's kind of a, a sister group to AA and it's the place where 
family members and loved ones of the alcoholic go. Not They don't go there to talk about how they can stop their loved one drinking or, you know, what they can do to get them clean and all that. You don't talk about that. It's devoted to you finding your inner strength, your connection with your higher power, your understanding of addiction, and it gives you back through a 12-step program, gives you back your sanity to thrive, if not at least survive, and then hopefully thrive in spite of whatever your addict is doing. Whether your addict is drunk or, you know, on a blinder or saying that they're never going to give up or whatever, Al-Anon gives you the tools to actually build a life outside of that. So it's wonderful. They do fantastic work. Well, I'm hoping that the lines to Al-Anon are going to be ringing like crazy as people recognise their need of support to deal with the addictions of the people around them. And I think it's a a truly awesome organisation. And it reminds me of the need, uh, what you spoke of really in relation to your own family with your daughter, that there is this incredible balance, isn't there, between caring and also recognising that this is their task. This is something that only they can overcome. So there has to be also this we have to both be connected, but we also have to have the umbilical cord cleanly cut. So so we're not, as it were, enmeshed inside the, yeah. the drama of the addiction, but rather we can stand apart from it, still be there, but not to get drawn in. You probably can say more about that than me. Well, you expressed it beautifully. And, you know, like I don't want to give a false impression. You, For myself, as my addict was my young you know my young daughter um you know she wasn't even 21 years of age so it's not like I could say to myself oh you know I'm done with my parenting she's 21 what will be will be she was young um so even when you go to Al-Anon I loved the fellowship and the support but walking every day finding that balance between my own sanity and where the boundary was between my own sanity and not abdicating my role as a mother. You know, it was a balancing act every single day, and I didn't always get it right. And that's what Al-Anon's for. You go back to another meeting and you talk and learn some more and get some more support, and then maybe you do it differently next time. Or not. (laughs) For me, anyway, it never got to the point where I was completely free of pain. It was. It never got to the point where I could look at my daughter suffering and think, oh, well, you know, that's, I love her, but that's her life journey and this is mine over here. So the heartstrings were always there. It's just that I learned, I learned how to have times, lengthy periods of time where I could actually bring joy into my own life in spite of and how I learned how to self-care because I completely lost the ability to care for myself, being totally outward focused on her survival all the time. So there's no easy fixes, but out of all the various things I tried in that journey, the 12-step program was the most effective for me to um, rebuild a life that was worth living, even when my daughter was still still unwell. Uh, that is such a 
Wonderful insight into what is, I think, one of the most painful experiences that many, many New Zealanders are dealing with. So, yeah. you know, that support Too of the many. fellowship, the structure of a well-proven, successful method of dealing with things, the 12-step program and the support of an Al-Anon group. Some great ideas for people who may be lost, who may be wondering what on earth to do. And even if mistakes have been made in trying to deal with this difficult problem, having a group to go to that will understand those mistakes, that will understand how tough yeah. it can be, that in itself is profoundly healing. And and one thing I'd like to say to anybody that's listening that you know this is resonating for because they've got a loved one uh, who has got addiction problems, and it doesn't have to be alcohol or drugs, it could be all sorts, it could be sex addiction, porn addiction, work addiction, money addiction, buying things addiction. It comes in all different forms. One thing I'd say is um, addiction can touch everybody from every walk of life, every educational level, every socioeconomic race, creed. It doesn't discriminate and there is no shame in it because people feel very shamed not only the addict, but, you know, the circle of collusion around them often gets quite paralyzed by shame and stays very isolated. Um, so quite early on with my daughter, I made the decision because, like I said, I am a communicator and a writer and a speaker. I made the decision early on that I was not going to keep it hidden. I was going to talk about it. Um, and I did. And what happened when I did that? I was an active in a church and I would share with congregation and what happened was people that I'd known for a long period of time that I had no idea that they had somebody close to them that was an addict, they would share with me. And they would say, oh, wow, you know, thank you for talking about that. Um, you don't know, but this has happened to me. And it just un it unlocks, it, it casts off the shackles of isolation and shame when you talk about it. And in some rather remarkable way, Linda, that brings us full circle to yeah. to you now providing a space for people to talk about injury to talk about what is not allowed to be talked about still they're not, not going to get recognized they're not going to get acc um here you are and i believe you are building you haven't mentioned this yet but you are building kind of support groups have i got that right Yes, so um, not just the Health Forum. We've been working with the Died Suddenly group from Facebook um, and NZDSOS and Nurses for Freedom have had a lot of input as well. And we've started this organisation uh, called VIPS, Vaccine Injury Peer Support. Um, and actually we've been inspired by the kind of the 12-step programme, not so much that we don't have a 12-step programme, but just the way the meetings are set up where there's fellowship sharing, you know, where there's attentive listening from the circle while one person speaks, um, and whether there and where there's peer support. So we've set this voluntary organization up with peer facilitators who are not there to heal you, they're not there to tell you what to do. They're there to hold a safe space and hold a safe meeting for vaccine injured people to connect with and support each other. So um, that's called VIPS. You can find that on Facebook. If you can't find it, you're welcome to write to me. Um, I, Jerry, you can put my email address underneath the interview. People are welcome to contact me about anything I talk about. And they can easily find that just typing in Health Forum NZ, can't they? 
Yes, yep, you can um, You can find our website and communicate with me through there. It's called thehealthformnz.co.nz. Thank you, Linda. Linda Wharton, for sharing your life with us, sharing your story with us, and sharing your great wisdom based on a life spent dealing with trauma, helping others through trauma, helping people in their health. A beautiful life, a life I would suggest that you probably won't be proud because I don't think you do pride very much, but from where I'm sitting, you deserve uh, to be feeling, you know, to pat yourself on the back for a beautiful life. Uh, just know that there are many people who hold you in enormous high esteem, as do I. Linda Wharton, oh, thank, thank you. you for spending time with me in the psychotherapist chair. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I think I'll stay in this chair forever. I've loved it. Thank you, Jerry, so much for inviting me to be your guest. <laughs> So what reflections can we take from that session with Linda? Well, I think one of the main themes of that conversation, and there were many, many gems in what Linda had to say, but one of the key themes was the importance of facing and embracing the traumas that we go through and getting support and learning how to talk our way through and process the traumas we go through. And these traumas, the tough times in our life, well, it's not the trauma that actually defines us. It's the meaning that we make and the learning that we get from our traumas. Very often, it is the traumas we go through that enable us to build new understanding, gain greater wisdom, and get new insights into life, ourselves, and other people. In other words, in the middle of really tough times, it's valuable to remember that it is these very difficult moments that can become a doorway that is opening for us. And this reminded me of a great story I heard about Carl Gustav Jung, who was one of the great founders of psychotherapy. He was a student of Freud, but I'm not going to go into the history of psychotherapy today. I've done that on a previous talk. But this story about Jung has stuck with me for more than 40 years. What happened was Jung lived in Switzerland and his neighbour, who he hardly knew, one day knocked on his door. And it was a weekend. And I think the neighbour sort of knew that Jung was around at the weekend. And Jung opened the door and his neighbour said, are you... Are you, a, are you one of these psychological fellas? And Jung sort of probably fairly humbly said yes, despite the fact that he was probably one of the most famous psychotherapists in the whole world. And he said, yes, yes. He said, well, the neighbour said, can I, can I talk to you, please? And Jung said, yeah, come on in, come on in. And he took him into his kitchen. They sat down and he made him a cup of tea. And he said, well, what's the problem? And then this poor neighbour told him that over the last week, he pretty much lost everything in his life. He he'd lost his wife, his house was going to be repossessed, his business had gone bankrupt, and his health had taken some incredible dive. I can't remember all the details, but it was a pretty disastrous story. And the story goes that at that moment, Carl Jung said to him, just wait a moment, just sit there at the table, I need to get something. Well, he went down to his cellar and he came back up from his cellar holding this really dusty bottle of champagne. 
and he opened this champagne. And as he opened it, he said, I've been waiting for a really special moment to open this bottle of champagne. I've kept it for over 40 years, and I've been waiting for just the right moment to open it and celebrate. This neighbor looked at him like he was mad. He said, what do you mean? What do you mean? I've just told you some of the most terrible things are happening to me. And Carl Jung said, well, it looks like now is the best moment of your life to learn new things and to make new choices and that your life is really about to begin. And of course, what Jung was saying was that when things go bad, when things break down, when everything is no longer going smoothly, sometimes that means we are creating a situation for ourselves where we can open into a new place, into a new doorway. We can walk through a new doorway. And one of the reasons for that is that sometimes, even as grown-ups, we actually are operating under very childlike assumptions and beliefs, ones that actually worked and helped us survive in our families, but which literally rake us as adults because they're not how the world works. For example, one of the ways I survived in my family was always to be the very best. I had to really excel to be in any way kind of noticed. I write about this in my book. The trouble is, that amount of pressure on anyone meant that by the time I was a young man, I had driven myself to exhaustion. So by about the age of 25, my health completely collapsed. I was a school teacher, and I literally could not get out of bed. I could not walk anywhere. I had what was called ME, myalgic encephalomyelitis, which is a very fancy name for saying they think they never knew. They think that the nerves are inflamed. In other words, we haven't got a clue. That's what ME stands for. I was actually one of the first patients at London's Royal Free Hospital, which invented the name of the disease. Basically, I had driven myself to exhaustion. And if we drive a mind and a body and a soul to absolute limit, then of course we break. And then we have to find out why we broke. And we have to go back to the beliefs that do not actually work in grown-up life. Now, the model I want to share with you is one that was created by Eric Byrne, the founder of Transactional Analysis Psychotherapy. And he summarized what trauma does to us with this script idea, this idea that we are following a story that we built up as a young child, but which actually doesn't work in the real adult world. And that's what we call script. And Byrne said, well, really, these beliefs about ourselves, like my belief that I had to really excel in order to be acceptable, these beliefs, uh, if you imagine a stack of pennies, and as you go through life, you're putting more pennies on, and then you get a belief that you take on because it's how you survive in your family. And he says, imagine that belief is actually a bent penny. And then what happens the next day and the next year as you put more pennies as you, you go through your life is that that bent penny tips the stack and mostly you can keep going until you get such a, you get to a certain age and then that stack is going to collapse. 
So basically, with this simple model, we can say what we need to do is go back to that bent penny. That's the cause of what's going wrong. And so when I got really sick with ME, I had to go all the way back to that bent penny, the one that said I was not okay unless I worked myself to the bone. I had to go back. I had to spend time learning how to be kind to myself. In my case, that took 18 months. I just spoke it in one sentence, but it took 18 months of resistance, accepting the fact that how I operated in the world was basically pants. I had to learn how to accept support. I couldn't support myself during that time. And luckily, my wife's amazing parents supported me and gave me accommodation for all that period without a single question. Unbelievable. That wasn't easy to receive. I needed to learn to pay attention. So during that time, I wrote down my dreams. And then I spent time thinking about, well, if those dreams have a meaning, what might that meaning be? And just working it out for myself. I hadn't trained as a psychotherapist at this point. Above all, during that time, again and again, I found myself having to return to that wounded part of my childhood. The part of my childhood that I write about in my book, with an alcoholic father and a family that appeared absolutely normal on the outside, but was a disaster story on the inside. I had to find ways to reach and acknowledge and soothe the pain. During those 18 months, I often spent days listening to really gentle, soothing music. And very often I found myself simply crying, and often I didn't know why. But it slowly dawned on me that I was carrying a lot of sadness, grief, confusion. And after that, and throughout all of my life, I must remember and return again and again to that very young part of me that was so hurt and so confused by what went on around me. In fact, that part of me has now become my greatest friend and ally in all the healing work that I do. That part of me sits there and gives me a way of understanding other people's pain. You see, I hate to break it to you, but our pain actually never goes away. Just like a wound never fully disappears. There's a scar that is left. And the scars that we carry are what shape our appearance, our personality, and ultimately define our course in life. So throughout the interview with Linda, we were talking about the importance of acknowledging and discussing and sharing the pain that we go through. And you see, talking about our pain and our trauma is how we reach back down to that bent penny. 
and slowly begin the process of straightening it out so that we can move forward in our life. But it's never completely straight. There's always a wee kink in there that reminds us of all the learning and the wisdom that trauma can bring us. Thank you for tuning in to RCR Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, just like what you're listening to. Either way, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you. So connect with us today.